Welcome to the WP Tonic Podcast, brought to you by WPTonic.com, a WordPress maintenance and support service for business owners. We talk to the leaders in WordPress, business, and online marketing communities, bringing you insights on how to grow your business and achieve success. Now, here's the host of WP Tonic, Jonathan Dinwood and John Locke. Welcome to WP Tonic, episode 168. Today we're talking, what is user experience design? What's the role of a UX designer in a project? Uh, before I let the panel introduce themselves, I wanted to take a moment to thank our sponsor today, Liquid Web. While most of you know Liquid Web as a managed hosting company with tons of options, recently they've designed a managed WordPress offering that's perfect for mission-critical sites. And if you're looking for improved performance, maximized uptime, and incredible customer support, Liquid Web is the hosting partner that you've been looking for. Every Liquid Web managed WordPress customer also has iThemes Sync integrated into their management portal. And this allows them to update several sites with a single touch. So if you sign up today using the discount code WPTONIC33, you'll get a 33% discount for the next six months. Just visit liquidweb.com slash WordPress to get started and use that discount code WPTONIC33. Uh, with that, I'll let the panel introduce themselves. Uh, we'll start with our guest, uh, Chrissy. Introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about uh, yourself and what you do. Um, absolutely. So I call myself a UX engineer, and basically that means I do design and development. Um, so lots of, of investigating of users and who they are and what makes them and then designing for those users and then developing as well. Um, and I have uh, my own business called North UX and um, really just focus on websites. And uh, I, let's see, personally, I am married and have two cute little kiddos. So lots of momming going on as well. Excellent. Uh, Sally, introduce yourself. Uh, certainly. My name is Sally Getch. Uh, my business is WP Fangirl. I do mostly custom theme development on the Genesis framework, and I'm the organizer of the East Bay WordPress Meetup in Oakland, California. Excellent. And Jackie? I am Jackie D'Elia, based in Charlotte, North Carolina. I do custom web design and development. I mostly work in Genesis. And I love working with SVGs. Uh, SVGs are awesome. And, and yes, uh, Kim. I'm Kim Schivler. I teach WordPress focusing on building learning management platforms and membership sites. Cool. Jonathan. Oh, I'm, hi there, folks. I'm the founder of WP Tonic. We're a WordPress service maintenance company. We also do larger projects uh, in trade um, or direct with clientele. We're your trusted partner. Definitely. And I'm John Locke. My business is Lockdown Design, and I help blue-collar businesses with custom WordPress development and local SEO. Uh, before we get into today's main topic... We have a few news stories. Uh, the biggest one that's out there that, that is caught my eye is um, there is an article on Medium. Uh, it's now just on the archive.org uh, 
the Wayback Machine, where someone wrote an article called Stop Malware. Uh, on the security of the 27% of the websites on the internet, uh, this is by a fellow named Scott. I'm going to butcher his name. Uh, Ark is Suski? Anyway. Um, it's probably something like Arshuski. There you go. Okay. But basically, this, this was all about um, uh, having like a signing, like when, when the servers, like the WordPress.org servers, like do an update. You want to have like a digital signing to where. Uh, there is no man in the middle attacks. Um, and Matt Mullenweg, uh, there is an article on the. Actually, he posted on Medium. The the Tavern wrote about this. They basically he basically said, uh, you know, digital signatures for updates are important, but for right now, we're focusing on the customizer and design and stuff like that. So, uh, Chrissy, thoughts on this uh, news story? Um. Well, I haven't read the story, so. Okay, that's cool. I don't cool. know that I have any thoughts. There you go, Sally. Never, never stopped me. <laughs> <laughs> right. You are you are completely free to uh, talk about things you know nothing about on this panel. As, as, as long as you can do so authoritatively. Um, uh, uh, right. Uh, so. Uh, you know, I, I think all of this was triggered by the fact that there's been a, uh, a and there was a vulnerability discovered in the uh, REST API, which uh, is somewhat ironic as, you know, lots of people have been touting the REST API as, as more secure than uh, XML RCPC. Um, and I, I'm sure overall it, it probably will be, but there was this little problem. And although it was not announced until after the patch was released, there been a whole bunch of exploits and so you know because WordPress is so big that attracts people's attention I don't know enough about things like cryptography and security to have a sense of how much difference it would make to do the uh, digital signing thing on uh, this I mean it's, it seems like that's not necessarily the cause of this particular problem. Uh, and uh, although, it, you know, it probably, it would likely be a, a good thing to have it. I don't know whether it's, you know, critical. I think the WordPress core team on the whole has been very good about responding to security issues. Uh, and so I don't think there's, you know, particularly a need to, to panic, and I, I wonder a little bit about the fact that this guy unpublished his story, and you know what's going on with that. Yeah, I thought that was a little weird. Um, so maybe there was some sort of uh, either second thoughts or external pressure. Who knows? Um, Jackie, any any thoughts on the, you know uh, dig, digital signatures for the updates? Uh, is this so are, are we talking about digital signatures just for the WordPress core updates, or are we talking about it for plugin updates? Well, I mean, I think the main topic was for the core updates, but uh, I, I would think for the plugin updates, that's communicating with WordPress.org as well. Um, I know WordFence had a uh, article on this too. We'll link that up as well uh, in show notes. But um, yeah, any thoughts at all? On well, this? I mean... Okay, so you get a core update. It comes from WordPress. So are they 
I guess basically people are saying there's a possibility that your update could be coming from somewhere else and that's a security risk? Um, so the, the thing is, is it could be coming from the same server, but if the file has been tampered with and it's not the original file, you would need a digital signature to say like this is indeed the original file. It hasn't been tampered with in transit. Oh, then I'm in favor of that for sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, that makes sense. I, I could also say, I mean, I guess this is just how things go with open source. So it's, you know, it's, uh, I guess if it was a proprietary um, platform that uh, that would be a, a different thing. You've got a lot of different interests pulling in different directions. So, I mean, it, it doesn't sound like that to me is a huge priority, although I think it is important. And I could understand maybe why they want to defer that um, for a little bit. I'd be more concerned about plugins myself because a lot, a lot of some of the plugin updates don't come from the repo at all, and they just basically come from the publishers. So, and and you really don't have any idea what where those sources are, or where those what servers those are located on, and who's um, checking those things. And you're bringing all this stuff into your WordPress site, um, kind of blind um, in that regard. So, I think that would be more of a concern to me than the core updates. You know, that's another excellent point. There are like a lot of updates that don't, you know, come from .org, but they come from the actual um, software publishers. And again, you're, because it's open source, we just, you know, trust things to come in. Um, yeah, that, that's I mean, a, you don't know yeah. that they could be hacked and have right. their uh, updates um, changed and you could be downloading those and just, you know, you see the little note in your plugin, you need to update your plugins and you do it. So I think that poses a, a real security issue if you don't have somebody who's really monitoring those plugin updates and who has access to them. No, that's an excellent point. That's true. Uh, the, for every plugin that, that you have in your site, um, and, and especially ones that are external and not just from .org, that, that, that is a potential uh, you know, not only for, for a plugin conflict, but, you know, just making sure like that that is uh, not going to demolish your site. Um, Kim, any thoughts on, on these uh, stories and, and digital signatures? Uh, was Matt wrong to blow this off or uh, was this even something that, that you were thinking about? Um, uh, like Sally, I don't know a lot about Cryptography cryptography. But what I did read in the articles is this definitely was not hap what happened here. It's a possible in the future. Right. And so I, I kind of got what Matt was saying. Okay, it's important. However, is it as important as some other things? Um, I definitely agree with Jackie. I think, you know, pulling things off of plugin sites, you have no idea where they're coming from. I mean, you know, obviously, I would be preaching to the choir here, but backups people you know, have your backups yeah. before you do any of that. Um, so I, th I can see why this guy, you know, that's his deal is the cryptography. And I'm sure he knows a lot more of how dangerous it is than I, I do. But I also see Matt's side. Uh, as far as the push for the core over plugins, though, at least to start with that, I get that because if you were going to try to attack this, who would you go for? Right. If I'm yeah. going for WordPress.org, I know that every single update's coming from there. 
as opposed to betting on, do I go get this one plugin? You know, unless it's something like a WooCommerce that so many people have, you have to look at how many people actually would it affect. Whereas I think his point on the core is 27% of the internet could be affected. So I, that was where I, I saw where that guy was coming from on core. Yes. Mind you, statistics uh, tend to show that the vulnerability comes from not doing the updates, not from anything that's actually in them. Jonathan, do you have thoughts on this? Well, uh, well, I did try and um, get Robert from WP White Security to join us, um, but unfortunately he was traveling and he said he wasn't available. Um, because it's really very like what Sally said, it's really very difficult and what some of the other panelists have said to make a judgment call because it's such a, a specialised area. Um, what Matt response to it, um, I think also um, seemed reasonably logical to me. Um, I think also the amount of publicity the article got and the whole the response um, was really down to what happened with the restless API. So it was a sensitive that this whole area is a little bit sensitive anyway, normally, but it was heightened by what happened there. And it has, a, it has affected um, people and live websites to some extent. So um, I also thought it was typical Matt at the end. He said, you know, I'm publishing it on this because this, <laughs> this, this platform is where you ran. Um, I, I did think that was... Yeah, um, that was pretty humorous. Yeah. Uh, I thought that was typical Matt, really. Um, Matt got his think piece in. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, but so um, it is really difficult. Um, I'm not. Um, it, the other aspect of it is, you know, you do lot. You do have a, a lot of. Um, we had all this situation and still do where hosting provi- hosting providers, um, some of them provide very customized WordPress solutions, and when you try and migrate the site um, and we have done that ourselves. Um, it's it's not been as smooth as it should be because you, they've done all sorts of things in the background and they haven't made it very clear what they've done. Um, so we've had a couple of those, but that's a very, that's a totally different to the article. But it's all about you know open source and being able to just do what you like with it to some extent even though there's more legal restrictions than most people are aware of. Yeah, and, and that's something I like that rolls right into um, our next story, which is the, the REST API vulnerabilities that are uh, being uh, reported by Sukuri and WordFence. Uh, and this was also an article from the Tavern. And I'll start with you, Jonathan, and we'll go back around the room. Um, but I, Sukuri said... Uh, it was on the low end, maybe like 50,000 sites with 20 to 30 pages were defaced. Uh, and WordFence was saying on the upwards of 1.8 million pages were defaced. Uh, our own Morton, uh, Rand Hendrickson, uh, was saying that the REST API should be disabled by default. And 
and yeah. you should choose to enable it. Any thoughts on this, Jonathan? And then we'll go back around. Um, who knows? I don't know where, where either those security companies get their data from. So it's practically impossible um, unless they publicize where they got it from. I think right. part of it was the Google index. Uh, right. That was part of it. Yeah. Um, I, I think it. I think it has affected um, some sites. How many? I, I think it's probably between the fifty and the million half. The truth is in the, somewhere in the middle, probably. Um, well, that's quite that percentage-wise isn't enormous, but if it's one of your websites, <laughs> it is rather important, isn't it? Um, but I also agree totally with Morton. It, it should have been the act. It should have been deactivated as standard, and you activate it when you need it. Um, it just seems common sense to me that that should be the the way it should be set up, John. Maybe in four seven three or four eight. Um, yeah, Chrissy. Any any thoughts on on uh, problems with uh, the REST API and uh, people having to update in four seven two? Do you have any? Uh, just thoughts, concerns, uh, you know, how, how are you approaching this? Um, I'm a big fan of the REST API, so, um, but I, I, I see both sides of everything. I totally, totally think that there's certainly a case to be made for it being something that you choose to activate. Um, at the same time, I think there's a lot of plugins that are tapping into it, and so it gets a little bit hairy when, you know, Joe Schmo user um, installs a plugin and doesn't realize that it's not going to be fully functional because they haven't activated the REST API. Um, and so, so, I mean, I think you have to be careful. And I also think that there is, I mean, if you're actually talking about um, if you have to activate it, well, then why is it in core? Um, you know, no, no other pieces of core really work like that. So um, I, I think it's new. I think that people aren't as aware of it. Um, I don't know that, that I, I mean, yeah, my thought would be either it's not in core and you have to install it as a plugin to use it, um, which I mean, certainly that's how it was tested out. Um, or it's in core and I do think that there's absolutely a case for it being in core and the reality is like it's going to be used and it's another piece that people have to be aware of when they're using WordPress that it's there. Um, and I think more and more people will be using it. So to put that extra step in there of, of activating it or installing another plugin to get certain things to work is probably um, not the best user experience. Yeah, there you go. Uh, Sally, any thoughts on, uh, you know, the REST API and the 472 update? Uh, well, you know, what she said, but, uh, it, it, you know, I, th I think it's not that hard if it, if it was not enabled by default and plugins depended on it. it, you would just need to be sure the plugin developers knew that so that they could do a check and, and, you know, pop up a warning if it's not enabled, because, you know, you see that with, with other plugins, if they're like, you know, WooCommerce extensions, you can't activate them without having WooCommerce activated, uh, that kind of thing. So, you know, it could be worked around if, if it turned out to be a good uh, option. I don't know uh, whether it's a good option. As uh, <clears throat> Chrissy said, it's, it's, you know, the other things in core don't work that way. Maybe some of them should. Um, uh, but, 
because, uh, you know, it, it might be nice in a way to be able to either, you know, be able to turn them off if you don't want them uh, or, you know, only turn them on if you need them. You don't know which, you know, it might be, <clears throat> don't know which way around would be, uh, uh, would be better for users and without actually doing a bunch of user testing, we wouldn't necessarily know. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think you could, could make an argument for being able to turn certain core things off if you aren't using them to, you know, increase performance or whatever. Definitely. And, and then the other thing is, I mean, I suppose because the API is a way to reach in there, turning it off will, you know, kind of protect you in a way like turning off XML RPC does. But, uh, you know, it, it, if the issue is that the, you know, the code that makes it up has, has a vulnerability in it, just deactivating it wouldn't necessarily uh, fix the vulnerability. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, well, you also got the whole um, argument about, you know, as as like w w which the restless API is a good example of. As you increase the functionality of the base product, so it covers many different users' criteria, what they're looking for. The, you know, some people say it's really WordPress is getting too far away from an easy to use blogging platform. The only way I can see that you can answer some of those arguments is is through modularization. Is there such a word? Well, there should be, shouldn't there? Uh, 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 where you kind of, um, you know, you have modules and you can add them or not add them, but then you got the whole thing, which which is our main topic usability and ux design you know that that can have its own problems and consequences itself can't it john definitely um jackie what are, what are your thoughts on this uh you know uh content injection as sue curry says they're seeing more um uh content injection uh type of attacks with the REST API, is, is this something we should be able to turn off in core, or uh, just any thoughts at all? Well, given that it's so new and it, there are problems, right? So there's security issues that are cropping up, bugs, problems uh, that need to be fixed. I think um, to go back to what Jonathan said, I agree that um, there's lots of different types of users, right? So somebody is installing it to just have a simple blog platform um, having it off by default might not be such a bad idea, but having it easy and obvious to turn on and off would be helpful. And um, I liked what Sally said about, you know, plugins should, if they're going to be utilizing it, then test for it being on. And if it isn't, just alert the user that it needs to be on. If they're, if they're installing plugins, then they're comfortable working in the dashboard and doing things anyway. So I think that would that would make a lot of sense. But I think until all the security holes are plugged and tightened up, because um, obviously you shouldn't be able to inject content, right? So then that yeah. means that there's a problem. So it's not that shutting it off is the answer. It's fixing the security holes in it. But in the meantime, having the ability to shut it off would be helpful, especially if um, you don't have a fix for it right away. And there is a there is a vulnerability and you just need to let people know to shut it off. I mean, for my clients, I would like that option to be able to do that. Well, definitely. I, I, I do think the remote, remote code executions are kind of like the new XML RPC attacks. But I mean, to be clear, like any site can be attacked, 
Uh, uh, Kim, thoughts um, on the that was kind of my point. I, with or without this, it, there are vulnerabilities, folks. It's that's just the way it is. I, my thought on turning it on or off really is how pervasive is it with the plugins? And the the more popular it gets with plugins, the more confusing I think it becomes to the user if it's off. And then their plugin isn't working, like Chrissy said. So I think if, if they were to pull that, it really has to be well documented within the plugins that they check for it. And then either they can turn it on or let you know this has to be turned on so it's not just more confusion for people. Um, and then the other one is Sally's point. Do we know that if it's deactivated, there aren't still security issues? Because sometimes just having the code there can be a security issue. And I don't know that for this one. So that would be my question before saying, oh, that's just the be all end all, we turn it off because if it's still an issue, you haven't solved anything. Uh, I, I think you're right. I, I, like I said, it's <clears throat> the endpoints being integrated into core, it's still a new thing. Um, there are still bugs, but the good thing is, is these are getting patched quickly, and and that's something we've talked about like before. Is you know if if these security releases are a good thing, they're not a bad thing. It means that that people are are seeing these things and getting them patched up. Um, WordPress is is not any more hackable than you know Drupal or Joomla or anything else like that. It's it's uh, you know it's just a new thing has been integrated into core. Um, and again, like a lot of people are, are DIY and I think if you, uh, don't have someone like telling you like, Hey, like turn this on or off, there's still, you know, that that's where the potential for any type of vulnerability is. So it's always good to have someone at least, um, to advise you like what to do. So, uh, Jonathan, how are we on time? We got time for one more story, or are we up? Yeah, against... I think we. I think we. Let's just throw one mean quickly, and then we go on to the main topic. John, how does that sound? It sounds good. Uh, last story. We'll just go really quickly around the room. Uh, this one was: How many WordPress plugins is too many? The answer may surprise you. This is by Colin Newcomer on the uh, WP Lift uh, website. Um, I, Chrissy, did you have you seen this floating around? Uh, the interwebs? Um, yeah, I have seen that floating around the interwebs. And, um, you know, I think it has less to do with the number of plugins and more to do with the quality of plugin. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I bet all the plugins that I, I use and install, and I usually am aware of who the developer is and, um, you know, what their presence is in the WordPress community and what other projects they participated in and worked on. And, um, and, and so I think it, yeah, I mean, it absolutely has to do far more with the quality of plugin than it has to do with the number of plugin. No, I totally agree. Sally, thoughts? The answer did not surprise me. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I I think essentially this article has been written many times before, and that you know it's it's still a valid point. But yeah, it's not the it's it's not the number; it's how the plugin is written. Because you, if you have one bad plugin and it's your only plugin, that's too many, uh, you know. And and you could have you know fifty or sixty and and uh, have them all 
be fairly lightweight and you won't notice performance issues and so uh, you know it's 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 not the it, it it isn't the number and that's a point worth repeating but yeah the link bait title is kind of annoying Definitely. Jackie, any quick thoughts on this? Yeah, I agree. I mean, you think about how many files there are that run WordPress. And so they're actually, in some ways, just all plugins, really. I mean, they're just files calling other files, and that's what plugins do. So it's more what those plugins are doing that will affect your performance on your site or could cause vulnerabilities for you. So I totally agree with what Sally said there, is that it's more about... Um, what they're doing. So if you're installing a plugin and it has a lot of HTTP requests and it is loading up a style sheet and three JS files, then that's going to have more of a performance hit than just a PHP coded plugin, right? So maybe you have a simple plugin, it's one or two PHP files that make up the plugin. That's not going to have any real performance um, hit to your site at all. It's all the other things that most of the plugins are doing that that will cause that. So, and you, when you vet those plugins, take a peek at them and see what's what's all going on inside. I think, um, you know, and you give you more comfort about which ones to use. Yep, definitely, Kim. Absolutely, what they said, and and that was his point in the article. The one thing I found that he missed is, yes, it's about the plugin. It can also be about specific configurations within a plugin. So, take a good plugin like a security plugin and turn on that file change option and you're going to hurt very often because it starts slowing it down. Fortunately, most of those plugins warn you of that before you turn it on. But that was the one thing I thought he missed is you can take a good plugin, but certain configurations can still hurt. Oh, I guess that's really true. Uh, Jonathan, any thoughts? On well, I, think, I think Kim made an excellent point there. Some of these plugins... Um, you, <laughs> you need why well, are we going to do a lot of start pre studying, which I think a lot of people won't do, or um, um, you're going to end up with a setup that probably was going to hurt. I think the other thing, um, I, I agree totally with what Jackie said. The only thing, the quantifier that I would state is that, um, based on my own experience, and I was guilty as this as anybody, is that obviously the more plugins you add you are going to end up with a more complex setup. Um, so, um, and it's really quite easy to end up with a lot of plugins. You know, I've got quite a few on the WP Tonic site. I think you could remove a couple of them with hindsight, but on the other hand, a lot of them I do use and... I, I think you just... I'm, I'm waffling now, aren't I, John? I, I just think you just got to take the sensible road and really think about if you get a stable platform and you're thinking of adding something else to it you really want to think about it before you use you add another plugin what would you say john well my take on this is and, and one thing that that uh colin like mentioned in this article is you can get stuff off the repo but some of these plugins are not actively maintained and whenever I see like stuff in the free repo, whether it's a choice between a plugin that's being maintained and one that hasn't been updated in nine months, I'm going to choose the one that's actually being maintained every single time. Um, 
the other thing is, is, you know, it's a lot of people that are either doing it themselves or hiring uh, the college kid down the street. They might not have an understanding of, of, you know, how many calls a plugin is making to the database or how many HTTP requests are, are actually happening. So it's, it's good to actually have somebody to, um, that, that, can look at the site, audit, like, you know, what's doing what, how everything works together. And, you know, whenever you're adding or subtracting stuff, make sure you're doing it on a staging site for sure. So there you go. I've seen lots of sites with like 50 plugins that run smooth and, and some with only like 10 or 15 that run sluggishly. So, yep. All right. Um, I think we've exhausted our, uh, our WordPress news stories this week. So we're going to come back from the break. We're going to be talking about what is UX design? What is user experience? How does that differ from other web design disciplines? And we'll see you after the break. Do you want to spend more time making money online? Then use WP Tonic as your trusted WordPress developer partner. They will keep your WordPress website secure and up to date so you can concentrate on the things that make you money. Examples of WP Tonic's client services are landing pages, page layouts, widgets, updates, and modifications. WP Tonic is well known and trusted in the WordPress community. They stand behind their work with full, no question asked, 30 day money back guarantee. So don't delay. Sign up with WP Tonic today. That's wp-tonic.com. Just like the podcast. We're coming back from the break and we're talking with our WordPress panel about what is UX design? How does it differ from other web design disciplines? Uh, and I want to start with our uh, guest, uh, Chrissy, uh, and other panelists. Feel free to jump in and, and ask questions as well. Uh, you know, first off, what is user experience design? Uh, when people say UX, how does that differ from, from other uh, disciplines within web design? Um, so I think user experience obviously puts a huge focus on the user. Um, I think that it um, dictates that you need to know, not just be guessing, but really know who your users are. Um, so you've done research on who those people are. You've ideally even spoken with those people. You know their habits. You know their, um, their preferences. You know their age range. You know their, their genders. You know... Um, you know, all of those kind of details about them and you know why they're interacting with whatever it is that you're building. Um, and I think it all starts from there. And from there you decide how you're wanting the user to engage and then you're designing. So you're just doing a lot of stuff before you start designing um, to really make sure that you're keeping the user at the center of things. So that, that to me is kind of the difference there. Uh, definitely. Uh, Sally, when, you know, when it comes to user experience design, how do, have you worked on projects where uh, that's a consideration? Like how uh, does user experience design in, play into putting together like a site? I've never worked on a project where we, you know, kind of specifically said, all right, you know, what's the, what's the UX design, but that, um, 
you know, and in most cases, uh, likely enough, we should. And uh, but uh, you know, getting getting that data about you know who's using the website and and uh, how they're using it and and those details. You know, not everybody has that information, and so it's been more a matter of you know I understand that anything that makes it difficult for a person to, to do what they've come to the site to do is going to create a bad user experience. And we want to, you know, we want to avoid putting up unnecessary barriers. And I want to avoid putting up unnecessary barriers to my clients in, in managing their sites also. Um, and, you know, I've noticed that I've become sort of more and more aware of, of you know, uh, these, you know, bad UX out in the world, even if it's just like, you know, you go to the grocery store and the carts are next to the outdoor instead of the indoor. Uh, and <laughs> so, you know, you're trying to get your trolley. People are coming out the door and you're, you know, it's, it, it, uh, it, it just creates a, you know, creates a mess. And uh, so, you know, it, it really does make a difference to kind of stop and think about, oh, how are people going to actually use this? And sometimes you can tell, like, because you know which is the indoor and which is the outdoor, uh, you know, and sometimes it's it's harder to figure out. And, and you may also have a case where there are a couple of different, uh, you know, groups of people who are, are using a website and then you have to try to figure out how to make it workable for uh, the largest number of, of people, which is something with which considering accessibility helps. John, you're, you're muted. muted. Uh, Jackie, when you think of user experience design, uh, when you think of user experience, what, what are, you know, impacts of bad um, user experience design that, that can uh, harm like a product or a site? Um, one of the challenges I think most of us are all dealing with is uh, when responsive design came out, it basically took us from you're designing on a desktop, and I wrote a post not too long ago about this, this, this mindset, okay? So we all design on a desktop, and we show clients everything on a desktop, and we don't typically do as much focusing on the mobile and the tablets and the small notebooks and things like that. And I think as that the usage is increasing on mobile, right? So like 60%, and that's basically coming down to knowing who your visitors are and where they're coming from, what devices they're using. I think that opens up a lot of possibilities about how to approach design. And um, Diane, Katie, and I did a uh, episode on rethink.fm about this. We were talking about designing user experiences instead of just designing the web page, design an experience for the user based on what device they're using. So, and I think adaptive design and some concepts around that are starting to bubble up because many of us are finding that just scrunching things down and shoving your sidebar down below your main content in a mobile display is not really providing the best user experience for somebody on a mobile device or a tablet. And more and more when I'm talking to clients and more when I am designing a website, I'm designing several different versions of that with different experiences, not just trying to take the desktop experience and make it work on mobile or make it look good on mobile. You actually really want to make it um, so that the user has a good experience on mobile. They're getting what they need 
Um, and a perfect example is like, say you've got a local store website that you're doing and on a mobile device, the user's needs may be completely different why they're visiting that site on mobile. They may want your address, your phone number, some other things. So you have to be thinking about when you're designing that, how can you provide that information to them um, just as easily as they can find it on a desktop site. And it's not going to be just scrunching things down and hoping that uh, they can find it. Because on a mobile device, the first thing you realize is you don't even know if there is a sidebar. You know, there is no sidebar anymore. There, there's nothing, all of that is gone, but yet all of the content is laid out and designed for a desktop and you're just shoving it down to the bottom. Well, they may never even scroll down that far to ever even see that content. And if it's something that's important, that is what the aside is for, right? So you've got a user, they're looking on the right side of the screen, there's something there that you want them to see. On a mobile device, they may never see that. So you need to really be thinking about how to approach solving those issues. No, that's... I, I think that's part of why single column layouts have become so popular. I yes. agree. I agree. Uh, Kim... Uh, you know, you put together, you teach people how to put together like uh, learning management systems. Uh, you know, what kind of research and in, goes into that and, and what impact is, does UX like have on, on putting together like an LMS? From the way I work with it. So on, on, if we look at um, the different dimensions of UX. So if you look at that, they define navigation and information, presentation content, interaction, value and usefulness is, are the five points I've always been taught about the user experience. For navigation and, and that type of thing, I'm not a designer, I'm more, of, I'm more of the content developer person. So I do focus for those on the accessibility, figuring if I'm meeting the, sex, the accessibility checkoffs, I've probably, I'm probably doing okay on navigation. However, I really drill down with my customers on the, the content, the interaction, and the usefulness. Because if you're building an online course where you're trying to teach somebody something and you're not presenting the content properly with value and you're not developing interaction, they're gonna leave. Uh, second, my argument has always been as a, you know, from my background as a trainer, if you don't have interaction, you don't have a class. If you just have a series of videos strung together, you've got a dang YouTube channel. But that is not a class. So that's where with my people, I really do do the, dig, the deep down on what's our content, our interaction, and making sure it's value and usefulness. And usefulness in the case of teaching means that at the end, they can do whatever you're trying to teach them. Because if they can't, you've failed. So that's my big focus with, with the, the user experience. So it's, it's really about like removing obstacles to like an objective. It's about removing obstacles and it's about making sure that you're meeting your customers where they need and helping them learn what they need so that they can then accomplish, accomplish it. And the more automated your class is, the more important that is. You know, if you've got some live classes slash live webinars like I do in most of mine, it's easier because I'm there to see who's getting what. But if it's fully automated, you've got to have that there or 99% of what happens is they just drop out. They do not finish it. Uh, because they can't get it and 
and you've lost them. I see. Uh, Jonathan, when it comes to user experience in uh, some of the projects that you've done, uh, you know, how do you go about considering, uh, you know, both user research and implementing a user experience uh, into, into web projects? Well, the only one um, why well, I haven't be quite truthful and, it, you know, basically it's a cost consideration. But I, I thought um, Jackie and Christy put some great points. My own spin on this is there's been a couple sizable drivers that have made UX design rather important. Um, those drivers are physicality of device, basically like what, what Jackie was saying about mobile devices, tablets and phones. And how do you take something that works reasonably effective on a desktop um, scenario and then apply it to a much smaller device? That's been one driver, John. The second main driver has been the, the SaaS movement and the startup movement in the Bay Area and in other major metropolitan cities in the US. And my own project with MailRite um, and utilizing WordPress and the back end and trying in the restraints of the WordPress interface, which because of cost and the investment level, I didn't want to go and have to build a totally new interface. I wanted to utilize some of the key elements that seem to work in the WordPress interface and just manipulate them. Um, but because of the SaaS movement, and it's really important, you know, people very similar to what Kim said, if you know, if people can't use your online service or product easily, they're going to stop using it, aren't they, John? And which is linked to what Jackie said about mobile, it's the same thing. It, you know, if they can use some service or some website on the desktop, but then when they go to the mobile and they might not even scroll all the way down to the bottom, so. They, they won't be able to use it, so it's all. It all comes why it's why UX design has become such a hot subject, isn't it, John? Definitely. Um, I want to uh, ask Chrissy. Uh, you know, uh, a, a couple of questions. But first one: um, a lot of times when you see people um, either des describe their role or list uh, like jobs, they'll often put UX and UI together like UX UI and I know this is like a, a big debate like UX versus UI do you want to just like kind of go into that a little bit and what the, the actual differences are between user experience and and user interface design um, yeah so in my my thoughts here are um, that UX is a little bit more kind of like strategy um, we're thinking about the user, we're thinking about what we want the user to do, um, and user interface is a little bit more about what the actual interface looks like. It's about buttons and, um, and consistency in, um, in what inputs look like throughout the site as a whole. It's um, that somebody knows like, oh, that's clickable. Um, versus I'm not really sure what that thing is. Is that a button? Is it just a graphic? Um, 
so those are that kind kind of how I see those things being different. And then the other the other thing that I wanted to ask you too, uh, you know, UX is obviously very research driven, um, and so when it comes to figuring out what type of research you're doing and with which users, how do you go about like doing that research and then how do you go about like implementing that research as, uh, you know, either it, it, it presenting it as a strategy before you go into the designer? How does that even work? Um, yeah, so one of my favorite ways to do the research is when um, we're kind of doing like a holistic view on the company and marketing kind of as a whole. So, um, and I kind of sit in like the digital seat in that regard and we actually sit down with them and we ask the company to define um, who, their, who their clients are, who their customers are. Um, and, and we ask them to focus on like, who are the most important and let's actually, um, you know, stereotype, the word kind of gets a bad rap, but let's actually stereotype them. Um, and, and kind of try to call these down into some personas. And so then from there, let's try to vet these assumptions that we're making. Um, let's contact some people, let's have some interviews, let's have them fill out some surveys and get to really, really know them really, really well. Um, and then also looking at current analytics, and it really depends um, how much you wanna look at current analytics because sometimes current analytics are not indicative of what you're wanting for the future. So, um, you know, I can look at a site that isn't mobile responsive and I can say, well, gee, you know, only 20% of your users are on mobile. Well, only 20% of your users are on mobile because the site doesn't work on mobile. Um, so to, to make a design decision off that would be a poor choice. Um, but it's definitely something to look at. So, I mean, I think actually having conversations with real users, um, looking at analytics, uh, one, one really fun tool is a tool called um, Lucky Orange. I don't know if you guys are familiar with it, but it's something that you could install on your site and you have to be careful because it, it will consume some resources. So you want to be aware of that. Um, but man, it gives you some fantastic user engagement um, just data. It will, you can set it up and it'll tell you like the user was going through and they were filling out this form. And um, at this question, 70% of people bailed. So then all of a sudden you have like really great information of like where the breakpoint was and how we could go in and fix it. Um, it also gives you like heat maps of pages. It'll tell you, you know, percentage of users where the content falls above the fold for them. Um, so it'll, it'll like you kind of like go down the little page and it'll be like, you know, 90% of people can see this above the fold and then you slowly start to see people drop off. Um, just gives like lots of really, really good data on how users are actually interacting with your site. So those are probably like my big tools that I like to use. Excellent. Um, I want to ask this. Oh, Jonathan. I'm oh, sorry. Um, was, uh, I just, I thought it's just a fantastic thing Christy was saying, but I just want to ask Christy, um, do you think, uh, you know, on reflection, the user base, you know, what what can, you know, obviously you want to build the most, especially I'm really talking around the SaaS product area, mm -hmm. you know, um, obviously you want to build uh, the most easiest um, interface that you can. 
But obviously, there's always, would you agree with this statement? There's always a balance with ease of usability and functionality. You know, you know, the more functionality you put into a product, the, the more complex the interface is going to be if it's doing multiple tasks. So you want to make, but there's only so far you can make it simple, isn't there? Um, but then is it also affected by the where the product is, is aimed at? You know, the, the people's around this, I call it familiarity, you know, um, um, Sally has pointed out most people, um, she did a fantastic um, presentation at the Sacramento word camp around you know familiarity of other products affects our ability to use other products and the example is microsoft word so i've just thrown a lot of stuff at you uh, yeah yeah um, uh, but i just wondered what, what some of your thoughts about that are um yeah i mean I'm trying to call a sound think through the specific things that you asked um the i mean i think the familiarity of, of how people interact on the web, obviously we're, we're all in this together. So I can't um, kind of decide that this little icon means something to me, but if it's not being used that way outside of, of my, my little group, then is it really um, effective? Probably not. So, so it is like, I mean, we're all kind of contributing to to driving what users know and understand. Um, I don't know who used the first hamburger menu, um, who decided that that was a menu icon, but obviously somebody was first and it made enough sense that other people started using it, so it's a more familiar icon. Um, so there's definitely something to be said for familiarity and you definitely have to look at what, what are current web trends, what are people familiar with, and one of the questions that we ask people is, um, what sites are you on? Where, where are you on a regular basis at on the internet? Um, and that is a question from letting us get a peek into their personality a little bit, but also what are, what are the user experiences that they're having right now? Um, what do those look like? So, yeah, I mean, I think you have to take that into consideration. And I'm trying to remember what were you, where where you started from yeah i am as well but no, no the uh, the other thing is you know obviously that the first part of mine is coming coming from this quick story i'll give to you and um, uh -huh. i'm looking at a, a different customer management system than the one i'm using at the present moment and i'm looking at one that's called autopilot and it's a startup that's been around for a couple of years and they managed to get 20 million dollars in finance so it's a well financed product um and i'm looking at their interface and it's very stylish very slick but uh, i'm on my fourth hour of trying to work out how this thing works right yeah. and um i'm back to having to take some webinars that they run just to learn how to use the key functionality and it all looks really pretty and it does look it has certain functionality that would really benefit me so i'm i'm staying with it to some extent um i'm going to invest a couple more hours into it and then if i still can't make head or tail of it i'm probably going to drop it uh, um but they, they have a ton of functionality in this product, Christy. You know, it does a mm -hmm. lot of stuff. So, so 
is it a UX problem or is it they've just got a load of functionality or is it a mixture of both? They've just got a lot of functionality and they're doing the best with the UX design, if you know what I mean. Um, sure. So in my, from my vantage point, everything's a UX problem. Um, so I think in this situation, like there is, we're just going to assume that, um, you know what, I'm going to need a power cord here in just a minute. Um, so I'll say this real quick and then I'm going to go run and grab one. Uh, sorry. Um, that we're just going to assume that the functions need to exist for people to be interested in the software. Uh, so then you have the problem of how do we make all these functions work in a way that is intuitive. And at some level, there is so much data and so much information and so many things that need to happen um, that that intuitiveness is, is difficult. Um, and so then you have the user experience from the standpoint of how are they actually prepping you? And there's lots of different ways that a, that a company can prep you for, for understanding that this is going to be, there's going to be a learning curve. Like when you engage with our product, there's going to be a learning curve. And so one, are you letting people know that up front so they know what to expect? Or are you presenting an idea that this is going to be super easy? Once you buy this product, um, everything's just going to work flawlessly. So um, I think it's setting user expectations. And then I think it's obviously providing resources that are easy and intuitive for the learning. Um, so like you mentioned the tutorials, obviously there's some tutorials out there. I don't know if that company is providing them directly or for other third party people have said, oh, we need to create a tutorial for them. Um, and how those tutorials are presented. So if this were my product, I would probably do a lot of, um, a lot of modal windows and like walkthroughs. So um, when a user first starts to engage, there is literally going to be some like step-by-step -step things and they get a, um, a modal window and it kind of explains the next step. And it's probably that that window is actually connected to a control or is directing them to where that um, next piece is on the page. So I think there's a lot of different ways that you can kind of solve that problem. Um, and so that's kind of my user experience perspective on it. And get your power cooled. Okay, I'll be right back. I'm going to ask um, the, the rest of the panel really quick. Like, what are some great UX uh, or user experience resources mm -hmm. that um, you've learned from or, or that people would benefit from, from uh, reading, I guess? I'll start with Sally. Right. I think um, something everybody should read is Tragic Design, uh, which is, uh, it started out as an article on, on Medium, and it's now a, a book in kind of pre-release from O'Reilly about, you know, uh, the the serious effects that bad design can have. I mean, you know, it's probably nobody's going to die if your website is badly done, but, you know, it talks about how, well, there were these, you know, medical monitors that were very hard to read and somebody missed seeing something and, uh, you know, this poor kid died as a result of it. And so, uh, you know, that it, it, it really does uh, matter uh, how easy you make, uh, make things uh, to use. Uh, and then the other thing um, is just a, a quote I first heard many years ago. I, I was looking it up. It's apparently from Oliver Wendell Holmes. Uh, you know, I would not give a fig for the simplicity this side of complexity, but I would give my life for the simplicity on the other side of complexity. Uh, <clears throat> that, you know, making, finding a way to simplify a difficult 
you know, a, a product that's got a ton of features, you know, that's always been a big challenge. And this like goes back to the sort of setup wizard days of your, you know, of, of your software that you install on the, on the desktop. It's like Chrissy was saying is, you know, if you know that there is no way around having a lot of, you know, options or settings or, or whatever. I mean, if, if you look at something like WooCommerce and you think, ah, it's overwhelming. Well, let me tell you, all these things, pretty much all those settings are in Shopify and because, you know what, having a store is overwhelming. You have to think about stuff like taxes and shipping and, and you know, uh, discounts and all of those things. So there's a whole bunch of stuff to, uh, to deal with. And so then it's kind of figuring out, yeah, okay, what is a logical way? What is a way to take people through this that's going to, you know, relieve some of the pain of having to uh, having to deal with all that and uh yeah again the you know the expectation setting i have talked about this before that you know there've been there there've been too many wordpress plugins and too many you know even discussions of wordpress that kind of sell it as being easy and and mostly it's not actually it's it's fairly easy to learn but it is not actually easy John, you're muted again. Goodness. Uh, Jackie, <laughs> any resources that you would uh, recommend? Actually, our own Morton Rand Hendrickson has some great courses on Linda about UX design, content strategy, um, and I found it very helpful. I'm a video learner, so for me, those types of resources are very helpful. And I found, I think he's got two courses on there that um, really encapsulated a lot of how you should approach uh, a UX design. I found that very helpful. So if you have a Linda subscription or a LinkedIn learning subscription, go check it out. Excellent. Kim, any uh, resources that you would like to recommend? Um, definitely the one Sally mentioned. If you're interested in some of the bigger picture, um, there's a company out there called Human Factors International, and they do um, a lot of kind of corporate training. So maybe they're a little higher level than sometimes we deal with in the, the WordPress environment. But they do have a lot of free uh, information about UX on their sites, so you don't have to actually get into their um, you don't have to go into their corporate programs, but they, they have a lot of good info. I had an actual question to everybody because it's something I'm getting ready to do with my rebrand. Has anyone here ever hired one of the third-party UX testing companies to do the live testing with people and then give you the report? Yes. What was your experience with that? Uh, worth it. Yeah, worth it. I I, uh, I actually, like, really early on, like, one of the very first things I did, uh, like, back in 2012, right before I, I broke out and did freelance, is I actually was, like, a, a, one of the testers for user testing. Um, so, and I have hired, like, people to do it before. It really gives you a lot of insight um, for people that, you know, maybe if you just want to get like a really super basic thing, you can get like one uh, like little freebie, uh, user testing peak. Uh, I'll link that up in show notes as well. But user testing is good. Uh, there are some other ones out there. I think there's one called Feedbacker 
uh, it's kind of more basic. I would say user testing is more the gold standard. These other ones are just kind of, you don't know what you're going to get. Um, but uh, there are other ones that like if, if you're on a budget, but I would say definitely invest in it. It's totally worth it. So. Excellent. Thank you. Yep. Uh, Jonathan, any resources on UX? Well, uh, my memory's failing me. The, the, um, I will put them in the show notes. There's one resource um, about um, my memory's failing me, actually. But it's a very broad subject, isn't it? Um, um, we have to have Christy back again and um, Christy, dis yeah. discuss some more about this because um, he is at the crux of uh, if you've got of, of the onboarding, because you're also dealing with. I've, I feel there's only so far you can simplify something and then you've got to say, well, we've done the best we can and then you go on to the onboarding experience, which is another whole aspect of this, isn't it, John? Yeah, for real, for real. Um, I would, um, before I ask Chrissy, uh, like her favorite resources, I'm going to just toss a couple out there that are, I think are good. Um, uh, one is uh, it's a site called darkpatterns.org and uh, that kind of explains a lot of the uh, kind of anti-patterns that you see in UX where people like kind of guide you nefariously toward the things that they want you to do instead of giving you choices. They kind of, you know, pre-select the choice and then guide you toward them and that's something they call dark patterns. Um, Another th uh, thing that I want to add is a book by Erica Hall called Just Enough Research is available on a book apart. Uh, you can buy either like the PDF or you can get the, uh, uh, you know, physical book shipped to you. That's pretty cool. And uh, another book called The Design of Everyday Things. It's a classic. You can probably find that on Amazon for a buck or so. Uh, I want to ask... Uh, uh, Chrissy, like, you know, what are some of your go-to resources, books, uh, sites, uh, you know, videos, anything like that, that, that uh, people could benefit and learn more about UX from? Um, man, I just, I kind of just absorb everything from all over. So I don't know if I have any, like, super specific resources, um, but probably like the, the thing that I... Uh, probably have maybe drawn a lot from is I'm trying to remember the exact name of the book, but um, it's, it's a book apart. Um, and I think it's called designing for emotion. Um, and it talks a lot about how that design impacts how people feel about things. And, um, and, and kind of like you were talking about with the dark patterns, that's something I am familiar with as well. And I always try to, because there's, there's like direct interaction, but then there's also that kind of like intrinsic, how do people feel about how they interacted with the product? And um, I think that um, the automatic pop-up windows, like statistically people tell us that if you pop up a window on a site after somebody has been there for X amount of time and ask them to fill out a form and subscribe to something, that that works. Um, the statistics support that. But there there's a good way to do it from a how you're leaving the taste in the mouth of the user and then there's a bad way to do it. Um, 
And so, you know, thinking about those things is not just looking at statistics, but also looking about the impression that we're leaving on people. And, you know, same kind of deal with the dark patterns of if you've pre-selected things, but they're not for the best interest of the user, they're for the best interest of the company. Um, and thinking about how, you know, maybe they went ahead and submitted the form, but they got a bad taste in their mouth. So, um, you know, that, those are kind of the things that I like to, I guess, think about or think through. Not always like the direct user engagement, but the kind of that indirect and how that's going to shape their thoughts and um, feelings about how they interact with that brand or that uh, site or whatever in the future. Uh, most definitely. Um, uh, anyway, uh, does anybody else have any uh, questions for anyone else? Or no, we're good here. Okay. Uh, well, before we like wrap it up, I just want to again thank our sponsor, like Liquid Web. Be sure to go to liquidweb.com/slash-wordpress. Uh, Use that code WPTonic33. You get. 33% off your first six months. Uh, we're going to stack uh, all these links up in the show notes. Uh, and if you're getting value from this show, remember, go to iTunes, leave a detailed review. It helps surface the show, helps everybody find this. Uh, our next episode is going to, we're going to have Chris Lemma and AJ Morris from Liquid Web uh, talking about the WordPress community and why that's important. Uh, that'll be next Wednesday. And then next Saturday, uh, I'll have to look up what it is. I'll let you know before the end, but uh, I'll let the panel uh, let everybody know how to find them. Uh, Chrissy, how do we find you? How can we follow you? And do you have anything you want to promote? Um, I don't have anything that I want to promote, but you can absolutely find me either Chrissy Ray um, on Twitter or North UX Design on Twitter. And both of those handles are the same on Instagram. And um, you can also send me an email at Chrissy at NorthUXDesign.com. Sweet. Uh, Sally, how do we get a hold of you? I should unmute. Uh, you can find me at WPFangirl.com. I am at Sally Getch on Twitter. And if you can spell my name, there's only one of me in Google. So uh, that will be me. Sweet. Uh, Jackie, how do we get a hold of you? You can reach me um, at JackieDelia.com, uh, on Twitter at jdelia, and I'm also the host of Rethink.fm, and before Season 2 starts, if you haven't catched any of the episodes from Season 1, go check them out at Rethink.fm. Awesome. Kim, how do we get a hold of you? You can find me on Twitter at Kim Schivler or on the web at WhiteGloveWebTraining.com. Excellent. And Jonathan, how do we get a hold of you? Jonathan? Oh, hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Go ahead. Uh, go ahead. <laughs> All right. Um, he's got the power. Um, I, did, I did. I muted you. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people want to do that, folks. Uh, um, uh, um, but on the 22nd, uh, next week on Wednesday at 9am Pacific Standard Time, we're having uh, a special live interview with AJ uh, Morris and Chris Lemmer um, of Liquid Web. Um, we will be having an extensive question and answer session after the formal uh, um, 
interview. Hopefully, most, as many as the panel will be able to join us, and you're invited as well. If you go to the WP Tonic website, Backstroke Blab, you'll find a link there, and you can subscribe, and then you can be part of the live question and answer session. Um, and it should be a great show, shouldn't it, John? Yeah, definitely. Uh, that will be this Wednesday at uh, February 22nd. Uh, on the 25th, next Saturday, we're going to have, uh, we're going to be talking about why web design communities matter. Uh, on March 1st, we're going to have Mario Peshev of Devry X. And on March 8th, Emily White of Emily White Designs. Uh, for the for the WP Tonic, oh, and yeah, you can find me, lockdowndesign.com. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, lockdown underscore. And, uh, for the WP Tonic, I'm saying adios, sayonara, peace out, we out of here, and get your dose. Thanks for listening to WP Tonic, the podcast that gives you a spoonful of WordPress medicine twice a week.